So we should begin this session by meditating and establishing our mindfulness on the breath, entering and leaving the body. Or we can bring our mindfulness to the hands, the right resting on top of the left or the left on top of the right. We should sit with an erect posture, keeping the spine straight and attempting not to lean forward, backwards, or to either side, and gently close the eyes. And once our body is in an appropriate posture, we should bring our intention uh, to bring uh, mindfulness to one mental impression, one aramana, namely the breath entering and leaving the body. And this is how the chitta, the mind, grows calm. The breath in this case is the home of our mindfulness. It's where we establish it. And on the night of awakening, the Buddha also used this kamatana, this meditation object, to make his mind calm and achieve awakening. It's an element of mindfulness of the body, uh, kainusati, and the first of the four foundations of mindfulness, or satipatthana. When the mind runs after various aromas, uh, aramana, mental impressions, or thoughts, we should make effort to pull it back to its proper domain, its kamatana object, or the breath. And this does take effort. If we don't apply any effort in these cases, then the mind will continuously and continually will run after every thought that comes up. And what it will encounter as it chases after this and that is just suffering or a happiness that is not real or substantial. However, if we make effort and turn it towards the practice, it will begin to perceive truth. In the instance of this foundation of mindfulness of the body, it will see clearly the body's true nature. This form that we have been born into is vulnerable to hot and cold, to sickness, to various impingements from the surroundings. And when we see this, we see that there is a great deal of suffering tied up in the body and in our possession of a body. And this is the first noble truth of dukkha. When our body grows ill or experiences trouble or discomfort, we see the decay and the limitations of this form. And this becomes a cause for our mindfulness to arise and grow stronger. We see the limits of what we've taken as a refuge up until now and how it changes. We see that the mind in a certain sense is trapped in this body. Having been born, we come to 
possess this element of rupa, of form, and all the drawbacks and limitations and sufferings that come along with it. We see it experience sickness throughout our lives. Uh, Longpur himself has uh, frequently uh, experienced fevers. When he was a young monk, he got malaria, which uh, sometimes raised his temperature up to 42 degrees Celsius. Uh, the pain and discomfort that are associated with the body are no small thing. However, with practice, we can make the mind steady, calm, and a refuge. From the vantage point of a quiet mind, we can see how the breath comes in and out, how it changes, and we can begin to establish calm and strength in the mind uh, by bringing it again and again to this aspect of the body, just the breath. A skillful means if we find that our mind is wandering is to count the breaths. So inhaling, we count one, exhaling one, inhaling two, exhaling two, and so on up until 10. If we have no thought in the mind, then there's no need to count, but we can rather simply follow the sensation of the breathing. However, if we find that our mind is restless, then bringing uh, this verbalization of counting to pair with the breath can be a skillful means. In addition to this technique of formal practice when we're sitting, we should work to maintain a, a modicum of mindfulness throughout the day. For example, we can take the meditation word, the meditation object of Budo, and recite it internally throughout our activities during our regular lives. Even in conversation, we can keep this kamatana going internally. And this will strengthen sati slowly and consistently until it gains power. As practitioners, it's, it's our duty to cultivate mindfulness in this way. And especially as monks, we have the occupation, you could say, uh, the job of developing mindfulness in all of our postures and activities. On alms round or bindabat, we should be developing mindfulness, uh, engaging in practice. As soon as we return from bindabat, we should sit meditation as well and practice. We should uh, keep mindfulness while eating. Uh, after uh, eating, when we wash our bowls, we should work to similarly strengthen sati. During work with the sangha, we should do the same. And then afterwards, uh, when we return to our kutis, we should use the opportunity to meditate as well. In all of these efforts and activities, we should think of and work to develop uh, the enlightenment factor of wiriya or effort. And applying this factor of effort to the practice can take many forms, but it is essential that we are applying our intention in this way as practitioners. Whether it be meditation, 
chanting, or even listening to a Dhamma talk, all these things that we're participating in this evening, these all represent ways of developing effort and ways of strengthening this factor of wiriya and walking the path. They're wholesome and to be commended. If there's no effort, then the mind will continually chase after the thoughts and impressions that's come up. And while everyone is able to uh, develop paramita uh, or spiritual perfections, uh, specifically to do with giving, if one meditates and gains some ability to calm and quiet the mind, then that mind with uh, the clarity of samadhi will be able to see the benefit and happiness that comes from sacrifice, that comes from giving, that comes from dana, and will therefore become capable of giving and sacrificing ever uh, even more. And this is one of the great benefits of developing samadhi practice is that it equips the heart and mind to give at greater and greater uh, degrees and therefore experience greater and greater happiness because it sees the truth of how these things bring happiness. We can harness this happiness in meditation when we sit, if we find that we're not able to immediately bring the mind to the object of the breath, then we can first think of past acts of giving, of sacrifice that we've engaged in and make much of these uh, recollections and impressions until the mind grows calm and bright and the heart full. Once the heart is full, then we can turn our attention to the breath and simply follow the inhalations and exhalations. But to first have the ability to think of this uh, brightness that's engendered by giving can help calm and prepare the mind for the more refined object. Similarly, we can bring to mind the Buddha and the recollection of the Buddha or of the triple gem in full of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha and brighten the mind through recollecting those things. And then once the mind is happy and full, we can drop these recollections and once again, come back to our main object of the breath. As we develop our meditation in this way, we begin to experience pity and sukha, rapture and pleasure, and begin to have faith in how these qualities of well-being arise from our efforts and practice. We see how they represent not just the fruit of formal practice, but the fruits of uh, sila, of practicing good morality, of practicing giving, how all of these activities and qualities developed in our regular lives lead over time to the happiness of this refined nature that we experience more and more in meditation.
this quality of rapture, pity, can be accompanied by many impressions. Sometimes we'll feel the body grow uh, light and our mind grow light. Sometimes it'll feel large. Sometimes tears will run. All of these are impressions that sometimes come in, uh, in tandem with the, impre- with the feeling of, of pity, of rapture. And as we practice and become more skilled in bringing up this rapture, we can become fairly competent at it and bring it at will. And in such a case, we might find that we can keep this level of well-being, of rapture and happiness coming from the practice fairly continuous throughout our day as we engage in regular activities like eating, sleeping, uh, all of our regular work duties. We feel the residual brightness from this rapture still filling and nourishing the heart. Once the heart has been nourished and filled in this way, the mind, uh, now quiet and calm, can finally see clearly. It perceives that all sankharas, all conditioned formations are impermanent, not dependable. It sees that the body especially will decay, will grow sick, and is inherently not something we can depend on. The Buddha taught that this is just the truth of existence, that this sickness which we might be experiencing now, or this discomfort, is simply a small sample of what's to come. If we feel this sort of discomfort now, then what of the moment of death, when the five khandas dissipate, won't that be substantially more difficult to deal with? And if we each have such dukkha, such suffering waiting for us, then what can we do now to prepare the mind for that moment when it has to encountering such it has to encounter such deep suffering we need to practice we can't be careless because each of us has the suffering waiting for us not a happiness but uh, at the very end uh, experience which could be quite painful so every day we apply ourselves we try to bring to mind wholesome objects of meditation, uh, wholesome objects of mindfulness, the triple gem of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha in a regular life, and in doing so, quiet and brighten the heart. We see that all of the impressions that come up in the mind and throughout the day, both internally and externally, fall into the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, suffering, and not self, and that only, only the kilesas, the defilements, cause us to chase after these things which 
are inherently changing and independable and non-dependable. Only craving causes us to get lost in them. But part of the practice is applying effort to not get lost, to pull the mind back. And this is how we uh, develop practice as we constantly work to not get lost in these things that aren't inherently something we can depend on. It's important not to take this ability to pull back for granted. Our birth as human beings is extremely good fortune and extremely rare. To be born as a human in body is fairly uh, easy though compared to being able to cultivate a heart that is truly human. Even and despite, despite the sufferings that human beings encounter in the body, they're fairly minor compared to what they were, say, 50 years ago, when the living conditions for most people in the world were much more degraded than they are now. Even now, for those who, say, uh, get ill with COVID-19, this is... Uh, something that people in former eras would have been quite familiar with as a limitation of the body. But in the current era, it's something few of us encounter. Yet through the practice, we have the ability to gain not just a human body, but a human heart, a heart that is uh, good and pure and through the practice, we can raise the heart and mind to an even higher level, that of a devada or an angel, a heavenly being. The heart possessed of samadhi and concentration rises in this way. And if we practice even farther, even more, and apply our minds to see truth, to apply our minds to be truly excellent and unexcelled, we can develop the heart into that of a renunciant, of a monk and a monastic. And we can count our good fortune in having encountered such a path of practice that allows us to develop the heart. It's extremely rare to encounter such a path. It's extremely rare to be born in a time when the Buddha's dispensation is still present. The suttas do not say that a Buddha a fully awakened uh, being comes along every 10 years or 100 years, but only very, very rarely uh, are such beings to be found in the world. And for us to have been born at a time when the teaching of one is still present is luck that we should not take for granted. So on that note, please apply yourselves to the practice. Be intent count your good fortune and use this opportunity as best you can for your own happiness and that of others.